This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. It's a small town in Georgia, a small church in that small town. The pastor, Gary Meyerholtz, appears in a picture under a Washington Post headline. What is newsworthy about his church in the middle of nowhere in Georgia? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Why did the Washington Post editors approve a story on this specific, really rather small congregation, if you look on a map, kind of in the middle of nowhere in Georgia? Well, I have to admit that when I first read it, I had a rather predictable answer to that. And that answer is, this is a classic story of good religion versus bad religion from the viewpoint of the editors and publishers of the Washington Post. We've talked about this many times. A lot of conservative religious believers think the press hates religion, and that is simply wrong. It doesn't explain many of the struggles the press has with religion and many of the frustrations that readers have with what they read in the mainstream and especially the blue zip code elite press. This story is all about good religion in a battle with bad religion, and this man stands for the good religion. His message represents the good religion. And then we can back up from there. The story contains a clue as to how the story, how I assumed the story got pitched to the Washington Post or how they heard about it. But then when you actually look at the biography of the reporter who wrote the story, I think it becomes very clear how this story proceeded. The reporter is from Hartwell, Georgia, and in the first sentence of her biography online, it says, I moved to New York City 21 years ago, sure that nothing could be worse than a continued existence in Hartwell, Georgia, where I grew up. I studied fashion and journalism in New York City, et cetera, and then the story goes on from there. Classic story of Southerner goes to New York to succeed and prove herself or himself and becomes a success, moves back to Georgia to do graduate work. And apparently I couldn't find out if this was a freelance story for the Washington Post. Normally, if a story is a freelance story, at the end of the piece, the Washington Post or a major publication will tell you either so-and-so, so-and-so is a staff reporter for the Washington DC, or so-and-so, so-and-so writes about issues in the South and wrote this story special for the paper. Also, the byline of the reporter is not an interactive URL. And most newspapers today have an interactive byline so that you can read more about the reporter. So anyway, this is a story very close to the heart 
and I would assume beliefs of the reporter who wrote it. Her biography stresses she's here to tell stories about the good South and the bad South. She wants to write about both. And this story is a chance to write about both from the perspective of the Washington Post. All right. I think it was last year sometime, there was also a story, it might have been in the New York Times or the Washington Post, that dealt with a pastor, again, a very small congregation. He was pushing some odd ideas regarding COVID. Mm -hmm. I can't remember exactly what it was. And we had the same situation. How does this end up in a paper of record? What is the, the narrative that's being played with here by these East Coast papers? Well, in that case, I believe you're talking about a very much reported on person. He's been covered by the Washington Post many times. He's outside of Nashville, and he's a very, very strong, conservative, I would say radical, independent church minister, and with a huge following online. Lots and lots of online connections. And I think it's safe to assume that someone in the Nashville area or just someone who follows ultra-conservative forms of Christianity in the wake of January 6th tuned into this guy. And he is a classic example of who the many, not all, but many mainstream reporters would assume is a typical evangelical, when in reality he has nothing to do with any existing form of mainstream evangelicalism or any of its institutions of influence. He's on his own. He's built a big online following, and that's that. This Hartwell, Georgia case is interesting in that I tried to find out as much as I could about the Mount Hebron Baptist Church in Hartwell, Georgia. The story makes it clear that he considers this to be an independent congregation. Yet if you run down some details in his background, his background is Southern Baptist, small, southern, deep Bible Belt, North Carolina, Southern Baptist life, etc. And then it tells his story. He went in the National Guard. He was severely injured. He kind of became disaffected with Christianity. And then one of the most important to me facts in the book, in this whole thing, is a reference to a famous book, and that's the the Ragamuffin Gospel. And there's a reference in one of the captions, that, and also in the story, that this was a book that meant a lot to him and helped him kind of return to the Christian faith. Now, the Ragamuffin Gospel is particularly interesting because it's a very famous book with a lot of what I would consider progressive evangelicals. And frankly, its message also rings true with a lot of evangelicals, period. And it's a book about radical grace. And the, the news story reminds us it's written by a former Franciscan priest named Brennan Manning. Meyerholtz decided to build the rest of his life around its simple premise for the gospel, unconditional grace. Now, Brennan Manning, the late Brennan Manning, is someone that I happened to have spent several days with and heard him speak every day for a week at a church in Denver and spent quite an amount of time interviewing him, and in particular interviewing him about the charges that he, post-Catholicism, had become a, a universalist, someone who believed that all people are saved no matter what. And he did say 
accurately, theologically, over and over, there is nothing you can do that will cause God to reject you. What he only mentioned once in all of the sermons was, of course, that really isn't the issue. The issue is whether the prodigal son chooses to return home and accept forgiveness. And we're getting pretty theological here, but this is really at the heart of this story. We never find out what this minister believes or what he preaches on any of the doctrinal issues that really matter in this story. What we do know, and this is probably what sold the story to the editors, is that this man created a controversy among Baptists in his area when he agreed to do the opening prayer at the Hartwell, Georgia Pride Festival. And we don't know what he said in that prayer. We don't know what he has said about these issues other than the fact that the story opens with an anecdotal lead about a lesbian couple who is active in his church and how one of the wives regained her faith because of this man and the acceptance that she had at his church. She had grown up in a conservative church where her grandfather, father, brother, all held leadership positions, we're told. And so the story opens with that, and the big hook in the middle is the Pride Festival. And I think it's safe to say that it's his prayer at the Pride Festival and how at least one local Baptist church responded. Now, we're told that there are about a hundred churches in the Hartwell, Georgia area, and about half of them, to one degree or another, are Baptist. But the story is not interested at all in who's a liberal Baptist, who's a conservative Baptist, who's an independent Baptist, who's a Southern Baptist, who is a cooperative Baptist fellowship, Southern Baptist, all that sort of technical stuff that might tell us more about what someone believes are not important to the story. What matters is he did the prayer at the Pride Festival. That made at least one Baptist church mad at him. They evoked demon language. We've got to fight you know, hell and fight evil. And once again, good religion, bad religion. The hero of the story represents good religion. The people who reject him represent bad religion. And it's pretty much a passion story in the classic sense of the word. So why so little interest in what denomination, the basics, you know, the who, what, when, where, and why? Yeah. Well, no, but that requires caring about the actual religious details of this. We have very little material about his preaching. We know that he, he did a Lion King illustration. That's certainly crucial. We know about the, the Brennan Manning book, which I would assume he brought up. And that's actually a very important biographical detail. Brennan Manning, like I said, was, grew up in New York City, became a Franciscan priest, and was very open about the struggles of his life. He was laicized. He got married. He admitted his lifelong struggles with alcoholism. He, on another occasion, admitted his lifelong struggles with promiscuity and infidelity. He ended up divorcing his wife all of which are a part of his testimony of unconditional grace. And 
that's all a part of the ragamuffin gospel message and hook. And like I say, that unconditional grace message is a valid theological point, but it often raises as many questions as it answers. We don't know much about this church. We know it has a reputation for being a place that's blue-collar and accepting, but I think it's also important to realize that the thesis of the story is also made clear in the headline. And there's this very interesting passage in the story where it notes, I'm sitting here trying to find the actual, oh, here we go. At a time when many houses of worship are struggling to sustain themselves with church membership and attendance, both at all time lows in the country, Meyerholtz seems to be pulling off a miracle of sorts. Tiny Mount Hebron is flourishing. Barely a dozen people showed up for his first sermons in the fall of 2020. These days, sometimes a hundred faces are looking up at him. Well, if, if you know anything about Baptist churches in the South, 100 people is a small church. Now, it may have been dead, dying, almost gone, and there are a lot of them, especially in rural America. I mean, but some listeners will remember I grew up the son of a Southern Baptist pastor, and my father was considered the pastor of a small to average sized Baptist church, and it probably averaged 300 to 400 in attendance. For sure, a typical Sunday would be in the 200s to 300 range. So my point here is this is held up as an example. This is what churches need to do in modern America if they want to grow and thrive. Now, that kind of a thesis statement and a statement of fact really cries out for some additional follow-up from some expert on church growth or Baptist life. At the very least, I guarantee you that in the Hartwell, Georgia area, there is every conceivable kind of Baptist church. Black, Latino, multiracial, probably liberal, especially that close to Athens, to a college university town. There might be a, another liberal Baptist church in town. There are probably fundamentalist Baptist churches in town. The bad guys in the story may be a part of that. We don't know. It really cried out for some background from other people in the area trying to place this man and his church in context. But we already know the context. The context is good religion versus bad religion, according to the doctrines of the Washington Post. Terry, this simple sentence, and I know it was put in there for color, but American flags abound in the description of Hartwell, this little town in Georgia. And the cynic in me says that's code for something in Washington Post speak. Well, frankly, as someone who drives in the rural South a lot, as I was doing just a day or so ago up in the mountains, I'm surprised it wasn't Confederate flags. In a lot of the American South right now, people fly Confederate flags not as a show of support for Dixie or, in some cases, it could be racism, in other cases, it wouldn't be. What I've learned is that flying the Confederate flag in the South is usually a leave us alone. Leave the South alone. We know you hate us. 
leave us alone. The road I was driving on yesterday was an area that a couple of years ago I noted almost every single house had, here we go, a Trump sign or a Trump banner. I think the wave of flags was saying, this is how conservative this is. And it might have been some sort of hint that, yes, this is Trump territory. But they didn't go there overtly, and three cheers for that, as far as I'm concerned. So what is the stereotypical picture that many journalists have of the typical church in South? Well, first of all, I think it's important to look at the top of the Washington Post story and know that this was funded as part of an ongoing series of stories called About Us, About U.S. And what is the purpose of this series? Right underneath that is here is the definition of this series. Candid conversations about race and identity in 21st century America. So whether this was a part of a series, they flagged this story as a part of this ongoing forum, that this is a story about race and identity, which are seen as the same things. I'm sure there would be African-American and Latino churches in or near Hartwell, Georgia, that would kind of disagree with that corresponding logic. But this is, once again, this is about a good person, an heroic pastor who has a growing church in this very dark, dangerous place, Hartwell, Georgia, the kind of place that, once again, the reporter who wrote it opened her biography on her own website with, I moved to New York City 21 years ago, sure that nothing could be worse than a continued existence in Hartwell, Georgia. Existence. That pretty much says it all. This is a really bad place. And there are good people stranded in this bad peace place. And this church is the church where at least a hundred of them have found a home. It's a good news, bad news story, good people, bad people, good church, bad church, good religion, bad religion. There was some really interesting research that was being done that used the zip codes of almost 3,500 journalists to determine what about the average journalist. Okay, well, before you go to that, let's back up for a second. You're you're talking about someone that I used to work with named Peter Brown, who worked for the Scripps Howard News Service years ago. And he gave me a copy of an unpublished book that essentially was plugging away at this question of what is news. Now, I think a lot of our listeners, if they read the Washington Post story, they would ask the question you said at the beginning, why did this story get covered? It got covered because someone decided that it's news. And that raises uh, questions, which I think, before we get back to Peter Brown, you have to understand who determines what news is. The old saying, freedom of the press belongs to people that own one. And that's 
a very true statement. I think in today's age, one of the reasons Elon Musk is so hated by so many people in the mainstream media is I think today you could redefine that phrase to say freedom of the press belongs to people and people who own their own satellite network. And thus they can't be deplatformed by definition. They can't have their servers taken away from them. They're up there in space. If you ask people who hate the media, what is news? Who decides what news is? And what I've heard a million times in my decades in journalism is people just roll their eyes and say, oh, they'll print anything as long as it sells newspapers. I'm sure you've heard that old cliche. The problem is that doesn't explain what is news in an era when the news industry is in free fall, statistically. And people are hanging on by their fingernails trying to maintain publications with a few exceptions, and those exceptions often fit the thesis statement of my recent article for Religion and Liberty about the changing business models of American newspapers and news organizations. Another cliche about what is news is it's not news if a dog bites a man. It's news if a man bites a dog. This story is about a man biting a dog. This is about an unusual situation, a growing church today, and it's a growing good church. What does growing mean in the context of the South? The story is not interested in that. What is it about this church that's making it grow? Why is it the man bites dog story? It's is this an unusual story of church growth even if they only have 100 people, which by definition makes them a story, a church that's about 15 people above the bare minimum to pay the salary of a minister. But so let's walk through this before we get to Peter Brown. What is news? Well, you start off with news is what a reporter thinks it is. And that leads to the situation where reporters have to get permission to invest a lot of time and money in covering a story, in some cases other than like a daily news event story. So that leads to the second thing. News is what an editor says it is. The editor who says, yeah, that's a great story. Write it and we'll publish it. Then behind that is news is what a publisher supports for ongoing coverage in terms of who gets hired, the shape of the newsroom, who gets to edit the paper, what are the beliefs of the people who edit the paper, etc. What I have found through the years is that often, before the current age, decades ago, news is what the friends of the publisher think it is. In other words, everybody wants their paper to be viewed positively by the people who matter to them. I think we've discussed before a situation that occurred here in my own area in East Tennessee, a place that's not that different from Northeast Georgia. I was in a restaurant one day and someone came up and asked me the following question. And the, like the day or two before, there had been a picture on the front page of our local newspaper, which is owned by the probably the nation's most powerful newspaper chain. And there had been a march on the University of Tennessee campus. And there was a picture of the marchers, and yes, it was sexuality related, a protest march, and the picture contained the crowd, and the crowd, I would estimate, was about 40 
45 people, almost getting into the territory where you can count them. A small demonstration on a symbolic issue on the dominant institution site of our area, which is the University of Tennessee. The person was asking me, why was that a story? And they said, a couple of weeks ago, there was a story in our area. There was an event in our area at a local evangelical church, and it was about sexual trafficking in our region. And with all the highways that flows through this area, headed to Atlanta, to Nashville, to New Orleans, to whatever, sexual trafficking, this is a region which a lot of illegal drugs and sexual trafficking passes through. And this church held a conference about this very newsworthy topic, and it was attended by more than a thousand people. And this person simply said, why was the march with 40 people, front page news, and the conference for a thousand people at this local church on a very controversial and newsworthy topic? It was not news. Why? Well, I think it's a very simple point. There were people in the newsroom that heard about the LGBTQ march. For all I know, there are people in the newsroom who marched in it or who had friends who marched in it or significant others who marched in it. Who knows what the direct connection was. But here's the key. They knew about the march. How many people in the newsroom do you think knew about the sexual trafficking conference? I would say that probably no one knew about that conference, or if they did, an editor said, well, they hold conferences like that all the time. What's the big deal? It was a, at a big, powerful church. What is news? News is what the people who own and run the newsroom think it is. And in our day and age, it's also news is what readers will pay us to publish. And that gets down to the fact that now as readership declines and advertising decline, a paper has to publish stories that it knows will ring true with its primary dollar-providing readers and subscribers. So when you read this story, do you think this story would appeal to the typical reader of the Washington Post? That's ultimately what matters. Did the good guys and the bad guys, did the plot line, did the images, did the storyline appeal to the main readers of the Washington Post? And I would say that it's a slam dunk. Of course, it pushes every button for them that it's possible to push. It even plays up prejudices primarily among the readership of the Washington Post and of other newspapers that look to the Washington Post as one of the two to three most important newsrooms in America. And that's how you end up with this story becoming news. So what have we learned about, and what do we learn, that survey I mentioned, what do we yeah, learn good. about journalism in general? Yeah, that was, that's a, this is where this may seem like a reach to some of our listeners. But what Peter Brown found in this research, and the research was done decades ago, we already, in the 70s and 80s, a lot of this ended up in my graduate work at the University of Illinois in the early 80s, we already had surveys that showed us 
that elite journalists in America were way to the left of the public on all kinds of political, moral, social issues. We knew that the great religion writer George Cornell got to actually look at the printed out and filled in surveys for one of these. And he noticed that under the, the phrase religion, that half of the elite journalists from major newsrooms in the East Coast region wrote the word none. And what he thought was fascinating was large numbers of people underlined the word none, not just no religion, used to be Baptist, sort of Catholic, I go on Easter, what religion, none underlined. Well, that was almost 50 years ago. Where are we now? Peter Brown came up with an idea, and that was he asked a major journalism organization, and this is national, not just blue zip code. He asked this major national organization, he said, I want to do a survey. I don't want you to tell me the names of your members. I don't want you to tell me their phone numbers. I don't want you to give me their addresses. I'm not going to contact them. All I want is their zip codes. I want the full zip codes, including the follow-up number that shows down to street and neighborhood. All I want to know is where they live. And then they said, well, that's not going to betray anybody. So they gave him masses of numbers about zip codes. And he took those zip codes to a market analyst, someone who makes money analyzing for stores, restaurants, maybe churches, who knows. What can you find out about people just by knowing their zip code? And what he found out is that all across America, not just the major cities, that this was just as true. And he said back then, Little Rock, Arkansas and Knoxville, Tennessee, is what he said, as well as Washington, Denver, New York City, whatever. The zip codes will tell you that these 3,400 journalists that went into the market study, they live in urban neighborhoods, not suburban, urban neighborhoods. They live in neighborhoods that are overwhelmingly single adults, overwhelmingly single adults without children, and they live in neighborhoods that are considered bohemian or countercultural, or at the very least, urban, hip, trendy neighborhoods and that's where and like i said this is decades ago i doubt it's gotten less true that's what he found out about the kind of the culture that produces the culture of many newsrooms and i thought the most important thing about this unpublished book which i still have a copy of by the way the most important thing about this unpublished book was that <laughs> it fit it was about the whole country. It wasn't just about the blue zip codes that we read about so much. By the way, the book was unpublished because conservative publishers didn't want it because it was written by a liberal journalist who was very open about his own liberal beliefs and everything, not someone who could sell a book on talk radio. And academic publishers and the liberal press was not interested in it because the thesis of the book didn't fit their audience either. So he ended up never being able to publish the book. Terry, one of the things stood out, I'd like your reaction in this Washington Post piece. It says, on two Saturdays this month, Meyerholtz will host a lakeside baptism for anyone who has been denied that right for any reason. What are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, as as a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor, what do you think of the words for any reason? Well, it sounds to me like there are people who would come to baptism, but not to repentance. Yeah, it's at the very least, you have to ask, is this the pastor's conception of this, or is this a Washington Post reporter putting that into words that feel comfortable to the newspaper or whatever? I have absolutely no idea what that means. But let me tell you what Baptist like life is like in the South. If an adult is coming for baptism, that means they have walked the aisle during an altar call, and that usually involves some sort of repentance spoken to the pastor. At the very least, it says, I have not been a Christian. I want to be a Christian. I want baptism as a sign of being born again into Christian faith. Now, that's a lot of theological luggage right there. But the whole idea that someone says, I went to a Baptist church and I didn't believe what they believed and they said they wouldn't baptize me. Will you baptize me? Is that what for any reason means? Does that mean they were baptized as an infant and they're not sure what they believe now, but it would probably be good if they got baptized? What in the world do those words mean? And to me, that's kind of a final capping symbol of this story because the word baptism has something to do with the word Baptist. And trust me, if you're baptizing adults in the South, the norm here is they've walked the aisle and they want to be born again. If that's what the Washington Post means, fine, but I don't think that's what that sentence means. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.